Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining this spectacular program, this uh, amazing adventure, this voyage, this magical voyage that we're going to be going on tonight. Uh, for those who don't know me, Rabbi Ephraim Silverman, Chabad of Cobb, and want to welcome uh, the Cobb uh, community that's here with me tonight, and of course also uh, Rabbi Ari Solish and his beautiful following here from the in-town Jewish Academy. So this is a joint venture, both communities coming together for a, again, a magical, really a special evening, a special trip to Israel. This is going to be one of those most wonderful trips to Israel. Uh, last time we did something like this, I mentioned one of the great perks of something like this is no lines outside the restrooms. You don't have to worry about waiting outside a restroom somewhere on a, at a tourist post, but you can, from the comfort of your home, see some amazing and here are some amazing things about the land of Israel. Our tradition teaches about some, uh, that in Judaism is full of love. And we generally talk about three loves, love for God, love for the Torah, and love for our fellow man. But there is a fourth love in Jewish tradition called love of the land of Israel, to love the land of Israel. It's been part of our tradition from day one, from the time of Abraham, this love and connection, deep connection to the land of Israel. Uh, every In the diaspora, we've lived in the diaspora for thousands of years, of course, and even before the modern state of Israel, every Jew, every year, twice a year, Yom Kippur and Pesach, of course, L'Shana Haba, next year in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Israel has always been a very, very important part and a deep part of who we are. And you can't separate the Jewish people from the land of Israel. And of course, the land of Israel is not only for Israelis. Israelis live there, but the land of Israel is really a special place and a, really a home for every single Jew around the world. So this is really an opportunity for us here in the diaspora to spend some time connecting with the land of Israel, learning more about Israel, gaining a deeper appreciation for the land of Israel. And for that, I want to thank uh, one of the most special individuals that I've uh, uh, had the honor to meet in my lifetime, Josh Evan Chen, who is here. Uh, from Israel, it's three o'clock in the morning. So I want you to just appreciate that Josh has uh, gotten up now 3 a.m. to lead this tour live from Israel. So uh, Josh is one of the most insightful, um, deep, knowledgeable tour guides. I, I think, the, in my opinion, the number one tour guide in Israel. So if they had to do this rating system in the land, we would say number one in the state of Israel, Josh Evanchen, the most knowledgeable, insightful, bright, charismatic, may I add, uh, tour guide in Israel. And if any of you ever are going on a trip to Israel and want to have an unforgettable experience, connect with Josh. It's the, in my opinion, the, uh, the best way to see and experience Israel. And Josh is not only a tour guide, he is also now an author. He's authored a, a spellbounding book called The 36. It's uh, available on, on Amazon. Uh, it is, um, I think Rabbi Ari is going to post a link on the chat if you'd like to, if you're intrigued tonight, you'd like to order the book um, before it sells out. If you'd like to order the book, go ahead and you can go on the link on Amazon tonight, order the book or after tonight's event. Some of you I know have ordered the book already. Some of, some of you might, might have begun reading this book, but it's an extremely intriguing book, fascinating book. It's a novel, but based on facts and history 
and really opens you up to some of the magical secrets of the land of Israel. So just, uh, and, and a lot of tonight's presentation will give us a, a sense of what this book is about, which of course will open us up to a much greater, greater appreciation for the land of Israel. Um, as far as questions, we have uh, quite a large crowd here. It looks like we're going to be close to 70 people by the time we get this program started. So we're going to ask everyone to remain muted throughout the, the event. Write your questions down or put them on the chat. Okay, put your questions on, type your questions on the chat. Rabbi Ari Solish at the end of the presentation will act as a moderator. He'll go through the questions. And of course, uh, if we can get to all of them, we will. If not, he'll have to pick and choose a little bit, consolidate some of the questions, and he'll present them, and Josh will be able to address those questions. So again, questions you have along the way, uh, put them on the chat, and you'll be able to, hopefully we can address those uh, at the end. Also want to take this opportunity to uh, mention and thank uh, Stephen Horowitz, who is a good old friend of mine as well, as a, we've I've done some trips together for sponsoring tonight's event, for being one of the sponsors tonight. Thank you and uh pleasure really to have everyone here so without any further ado let's uh, put your seatbelts on we're about to take off to israel and uh, everyone enjoy your flights and enjoy this really magical evening the secrets of the land of israel things you wouldn't be able to see even if you went there physically things you can only experience on this zoom here tonight wow thank you thank you um so good, uh, good evening to all of you, and and a very good early, uh, very good morning, early, very good. Uh, ah, I can't even speak properly. It's that early in the morning, uh, I guess to me. <laughs> um, I think that um, I just want to say first of all, thank you, thank you everybody here that's that's already on this, uh, already on the Zoom. I want to say a special thanks also to, to Rabbi Silverman and Rabbi Salish, who uh, this didn't just um, we didn't think of this yesterday. It was actually something that um, the rabbis approached me, uh, I think maybe three months ago and have worked with me um, diligently and, um, and to put this together. So thank you, thank you. Thank you for everybody for being here. Uh, one of the advantages of doing it at 3 a.m. in Israel is that I went to bed at 8.30 last night. So that was an advantage. Uh, um, whoever gets to go to bed at our age at, at 8 p.m., 8.30 p.m., you know, when, we, when the parents say to their children, can you put me in bed now? So that was a that was a rare experience, and and it was it was very pleasant actually. Um, what are we going to What are we going to do this evening? Um, over the next hour, or just under an hour, what I plan to do is to take you on a mystical and magical journey of Israel. And um, because we're so used to watching things on YouTube and Zooms, and we can see like a, a counter that tells us exactly how much longer this lecture is going to go on and we don't have that since it's live, then I just wanted to give you a heads up. This, um, this lecture is in three parts. Um, the first part is an introduction, which I'm about to do. The second part, I'll be taking you on that mystical, magical journey to the land of Israel. We'll be seeing two separate sites that I'm gonna take you there using uh, modern technology called Google Earth Presentations. And in the, in the middle of those two sites, I'm gonna read to you a small section of the book that I think is very relevant to the time of year that we're in. And it also has another uh, aspect that um, it also explains Jewish geography. And we'll get to there, obviously, when we get there. And the last part is, is a summary. Um, I'm just gonna present a, a short three, four, five minute uh, summary of, of what we've accomplished and the purpose of the book. And then Rabbi Salish will moderate some questions and we'll, we'll see what there's time for. So without further ado, 
I'm going to introduce myself again. My name is Josh Evenchen. Um, Evenchen is a Hebraization of Goldstein. If I only knew that I'd be an author one day selling books in English, I would never have transliterated my name, which is the translation of Goldstein to Goldstone to Gemstone, which is Evenchen, because many people think I'm half Asian. I, I wouldn't mind being half Asian, but I'm not. It's Evenchen and not even Chen. I've been working as a Torah educator for about 30 years. Um, what exactly is Torah education? It's not exactly Torah guiding. I am a Torah guide, but I'm also a teacher. And one of the differences in a nutshell is that a Torah guide, and I have many wonderful Torah guide colleagues, they can take you to a place, let's say like Masada, and explain to you all of the what's of Masada, the what and the when. Torah educators typically explain what's and when's, but they discuss and facilitate a why. And that why is, why am I here? And anybody who's been with me to Israel, and there might be some people like that right now in the Zoom, will know that's a common question that I, that I pepper, that I encourage people that are with me, whether they're students or families or seniors, whoever they are, is to always pepper me with, Josh, where are we and why are we here? And we'll also get back to that question of why are we here? We'll get back to that in our summary as well. So um, this book, actually many people think I wrote during Corona. I didn't. Corona allowed me to polish it and to edit it and to publish it. But I wrote it a few years before Corona. And then I just put it on the back burner and said, maybe one day, one day when I retire, I'll be able to publish it. So thank you, Corona, for allowing me to retire for a couple of years in the middle. I hope it will be eventually the middle of my career. Um, but I did choose a hard path, which I only recognize retroactively, that most authors either write fiction, which requires imagination, or nonfiction, which requires research. So mine, apparently, I did both. And I didn't realize that when I set out on my path. But it is a work of fiction with a tremendous amount of, of, of Jewish insight, geographical and historical information. If anybody's ever read the book but not seen the movie, The Da Vinci Code, um, it is similar in style, meaning uh, people ask me, is it fiction or nonfiction? To which I answer, yes, yes, it is fiction or nonfiction, meaning it's a story of quest and mystery and intrigue, but it is firmly grounded and steeped in history, archaeology, and Judaism. I could say perhaps it's a fictional story within a nonfiction book. It, maybe it's also similar to when I guide, I often tell people that everything I tell you, it either is or is not true. I, that I can guarantee. Um, and, and because there might be quite a few people here who might have Hasidish leanings, at least in interest, there's a famous, um, there's a very famous um, quote out there about the stories of the Baal Shem Tov, who's the founder of the Hasidic movement. So they say that anybody who believes all of his stories is all the stories about the Baal Shem Tov is a fool. And anybody who doesn't believe any of the stories of the Baal Shem Tov is, is, um, is um, what's the word in, uh, in English? Is a kofair, is uh, someone who is a non-believer. So basically not all true stories actually ever happened, but the fact that they didn't happen does not mean that they are not true. The narrative, um, it follows two lines. The first line is a minor storyline but it's the foundation, it's the historical foundation of the book. And that occurs from the night of the burning of the temple, the Romans in the year 70, let me start that sentence earlier. In the year 70, the Romans attack Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, that, and, and it ends, it culminates in the year 73 with the fall of Masada, which is the last stronghold of the Jewish rebels against the Romans. That's the minor storyline, and it's told in bits and pieces throughout. 
What I did is I took all that history, but I gave it a different twist. So the information there is correct. Some of the motives, no one can ever prove me wrong or right unless we have a time machine, but I've actually answered some of the questions that for me as a guide, I've never fully been satisfied with the answers. Uh, for instance, why exactly did the Romans burn the Jewish temple? They destroyed many cultures. They didn't destroy their temples. And why exactly did they send 15,000 Roman troops after the war was already over to go take care of a thousand stranded men, women, and children in the middle of the desert? It just doesn't make sense. So the way that I wrote the book actually answers both of those questions and ties them together. At this point, many people might be thinking to themselves, how is any of this connected to 36? Because that's the title behind me on the screen, the 36. So patience, please, I will get to there. I'll, I'll promise I'll get back to the 36. And the last thing before we go into the geography is the modern storyline. This is the bulk of the book. Um, about, I would say 95% of the book, 90, 95% of the book. It's a modern storyline that follows my two protagonists. They're twin brothers. They're about 29 years of age when the story is being told in 2010, one whose name is Adir and the other whose name is Yitzhak. They are identical twins. Um, the story basically follows them as they go on a search, on a journey. The journey includes rescuing their father, who is an Orthodox uh, rabbi, an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who's been abducted. They also need to find the location or at least find the hidden temples from the, uh, the hidden treasures from the temple. Uh, and the third thing is really they need to find themselves. And in tackling that quest of finding themselves, I also brought a lot into the story about the struggles that occur within modern Judaism today. And I would say probably to, a, to varying degrees, not only the struggle within Judaism, but also the struggle within, within Israel, between Orthodox society and secular society. And, um, and that's, what, that's who my protagonists are. They're twin brothers. They grew up together in an ultra-Orthodox home. One left the fold and uh, became secular, and the other became what's known in the, in the Orthodox world or the yeshiva world known as an Eloi, which is um, a, a, a great mind of, um, of, of, in, in Talmudic and Torah study. So um, that's what that is. The geography, um, the brothers travel to some of the holiest and most inaccessible sites in Israel. And therefore, without further ado, we are now going to follow them to their first site. So I'm going to, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be sharing my screen. One moment, please. There we go. I'll be sharing my screen with you all. And here we are somewhere looking at North America. And I assume that all of you are somewhere over there in Georgia or around that area. And I don't want to talk about Georgia. I want to take you guys, I want to spin the globe and take you guys all the way here to the Holy Land of Israel. Okay, I want to focus here on Jerusalem. Uh, let's just spread out a little bit like this first. Uh, your screen, depending on your computers, you may see this smooth. You may see this a little bit choppy. I see it smoothly, but um, and I hope that you guys too as well uh, also see it as, as well. So this is in general the land of Israel. There are four holy sites in Israel, four holy cities. 
I'm not going to get into all those concepts right now. Um, some of you may have been with me on earlier Zoom tours that we did with Rabbi Silverman, where we uh, explored the four holy cities of Israel. Um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to just going to show you very briefly um, um, that in this landscape, as you can see, there's all these different dots, and we're not going to go to all of them, at least not in this hour. I'm going to take you actually straight away to what is certainly in, I would say, in Chabad thought, um, the, I would say, maybe equal, maybe second to Jerusalem, and that is going to Hebron. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start over here in the area of Hebron. This is an overview of Hebron. It'll clear, it'll clear up in just a minute. Here you go. Close this. And I'm just going to spin the camera around. So you can see the, 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 the map right now is focused on the modern community of Hebron. It's an urban developed community. But what's spinning in the center is Marat HaMachpelah. Marat HaMachpelah is the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs. And what I want to do right now, actually, is stop sharing the Google map with you. And I'm going to be sharing, one moment, I would like to share this. This is something that I haven't yet done, and I hope it works nicely. What I have here is I have here uh, a page, uh, a page from the book, and I'm just going to read to you the section that sort of explains. This is in chapter 24, and that sort of explains how it is that the these two protagonists know how to get to Hebron. So once again, the the, the stand the the story is that their father has been abducted, and they're being teased through a series of riddles um, that are that they, these riddles come to them either uh, through papers or cell phone or a text or something like that. It, it, it varies throughout the book and, and they decipher them. And by deciphering them, they, they, they come up with, they come out with um, new understandings and, and actually helps them get from one place to the other. And why that's even necessary, that's also explained in the book, throughout the book. It's a developing line in the story. So I'm going to start reading here from the top of page uh, 100 and um, let me just see here for a minute. Um, okay, let me just go up here. The note that they get, you know what, I'm going to do it like this, actually. I just remembered I have something else, even one moment. I have, ah, this is what I want to show. I've never done this before. This is essentially a visual of what the, the first note that they received, <laughs> what it might look like. Um, someone asked me if I was going to do a... Uh, um, uh, a book with the uh, with illustrations. So yes, I guess I might in the future. If there is going to be an illustration, this would be a very rough. This would be a prototype of of the first note. So the note has different elements on it. It has an upside down triangle or a triangle that's pointing down. On the top, it says Lamed Vav as an acronym, and Lamed Vav in Gematria, which is the numerical value of Hebrew letters, that's thirty six. The word underneath underneath it are four letters. And it can be read in at least two different ways. It can be read as Eicha or Ayeka. And Ayeka is how they're going to first read it. And that's a Hebrew biblical word, which I'll explain in just a moment. And beneath it in Hebrew, it says, Adam Yagato Matzata Tamin, which in English would translate as man seek diligently and find believe or find belief or something like that. Obviously, things are somewhat lost in translation. Um, and Yagato Matsata Tamin, seek diligently and find, then you should believe, is, is a partial quote from the, one of the most famous of all the Mishnahs 
and that is ethics of our fathers. And they're essentially um, uh, deciphering that. So I'm not going to take you back to the book. Taking you back here to the book. And I'm reading here from, uh, where was I? Okay, I'm reading here from the top of page 110. And I, and I thought that it might be more convenient for some people if they could see the, um, uh, the text. I haven't done this in the past, so later you'll have to tell me whether this was successful or not. So here, what I'm reading is the following. While his eyes were closed from the top of 110, if you lie five lines down, while his eyes were closed in concentration, he heard his brother repeating underneath his breath, Ayeka, Ayeka. It was the first quizzical statement that the mystery caller had said to Adir. This was on the phone earlier. He opened his eyes and to see his brother holding a Bible and flipping its pages to the very beginning. Of course, Yitzhak exclaimed, the very first disappearance in history. How did I not see this before? Yitzchak looked up at Adir. Adam tries to disappear and hides from God. And what is God's response? He seeks him out with the simple question, Ayeka, where are you? It's like the first game of hide and go seek. God knows where Adam is, but nonetheless, there is a challenging question of Ayeka. Adir thumped his hand on the Bible. Yitzchak, I need to go to Hebron. I think you just discovered where father is, or at least where I need to look. Yitzhak looked hesitant. All he did was point out that I believe the message relates to Hebron. I didn't mean to imply that you should actually go there. So then he says, one might even say, and this is a quote, there are, there's a lot of um, Jewish um, Talmudic quotes that, that, that I peppered within the narrative. So this is one of them. He prophesies, yet did not know what he prophesies. It's, it's explained at a different point of the book, but here it just appears as a line. Adir smiled and yet was quite serious. Yitzchak, the quote on the note is from the Tractate of Megillah. You said so yourself. If someone is hinting to us that there is an entire story here, a whole Megillah, well, I'm not sure yet what this is all about, but I don't intend to sit back and wait for the entire show to be played out at my expense. I am heading to Hebron. And with that, he turned around and headed for the door. A hand placed on his shoulder spun him around. Adir, you may be more the man of action between the two of us, but whatever this is about, it involves both of us and I'm coming too. So that's essentially how, now I'm taking us back to the map, that's how my protagonists end up going on their magical journey, taking them to the holy sites of Israel, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow them right now to those magical sites. So here I have, once again, Hebron, and I'm focusing here on the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs. Okay, now we're looking at it from above, okay? We're looking at it from above, it's this area over here. You can see today there's a very dense urban environment around this square structure. I'm gonna spin it around once again, just so we can see it from this angle. And if you can't exactly discern what you're seeing from the Google map, because the resolution, many people don't know this, the resolution of Google maps in Israel is not very good. And that's done for security reasons. If I had you looking at Cobb County, you'd be able to see it a lot better, but it's not as interesting. But um, so therefore, we also have pictures that can enhance. So that's what we're doing now. I'm going to take you down now to the ground level, standing right outside of Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs. Okay, that's what we're looking at right now. This is the main entrance over here. If you've been, then this is where you've gone, where you can see just above this tree in the center. That's the staircase that goes up into the entrance. And there are many people that are surrounding the site. There's a group. It looks like a group of Asians. Um, it looks like maybe a tour guide there. I don't know. 
And there are many, many, very interesting things here. This, the, I think that one of the most intriguing things about the entire structure as a structure is that it is 2000 years old. It was designed and built by the infamous King Herod 2000 years ago. And what's interesting tidbit about it is to the best of my knowledge, it is the oldest still standing structure, certainly in Israel, possibly in the world, that is not just still standing, but is still functioning in its original use. That is, there might be other structures that are older than 2000 years old still standing, but they may not still be standing in their completion and or they may not still be functioning in their original use. However, this one is. And that, once again, that's a view from our interior, from the exterior. Now what I'd like to do is to take you inside. So I've now taken you as if. Okay, one second. Where did the... Ah, here it is. Okay, I'm gonna pop open this picture here. These are some still images of what you may see when you go to the inside. So this is called the grave marker of Jacob, of Jacob the forefather. You can see here there's an iron drate. It's green. It looks Islamic because it is Islamic. The site has been holy to Judaism since about, give or take, 3,900 years ago. Um, and we'll see that also in a minute. But about 1,300 years ago when Islam took over the Middle East, they also identified the, the holy biblical characters of the Jewish Bible. They identified them as holy Islamic prophets, which is why it's also holy to Islam and, and why, that the, why the Muslims have their relationship to it. They've done a lot of the interior modifications of the architecture, and that's what you're seeing here. The sign is in Hebrew, and it says this is the grave marker of the patriarch Jacob. And through the grate, I don't know how well you can see it, there's a cenotaph. A cenotaph is a very, very large grave marker. It looks like a tomb, although it's not a tomb. The tombs are very much beneath us. And again, we'll be seeing that in a minute as well. This here is a floor plan. It's a, it's a floor plan. It's an architectural and archaeological floor plan. On this side here on your left, you can see that there are four, they look like boxes perhaps or squares. Those are the tombs on the left of Jacob and and, um, and Leah. In the center are Abram and Sarah. And on the far right are the two tombs, or actually they're two markers of Isaac and Rebecca. And here we have here a sketch. It's actually um, um, done by, uh, by a Christian theologian, but he's painting or etching a biblical scene from the book of Genesis, where on the right, you have a guy named Avraham Avinu, that would be Abraham to us. And on the left is a guy that most of you may not recognize, and that is Ephron the Hittite. And he is the local Canaanite guy. Avraham is purchasing, that's what's in his hand. He has a bag of 400 silver shekels in his coin. And he says, I want to buy this cave as a burial site for my wife, Sarah. And I want to purchase it for 400 shekels. There's a tremendous amount of Jewish insight what's going on here. I'm not going to get into that right now, but behind them, you can see there is a mountain with a cave or actually two caves. And why two caves? Because the cave in Hebrew is called the Machpelah cave. Nobody knows exactly what Machpelah means. There are many different, um, at least three, at least three different ideas that I'm familiar with. And there are probably others what the uh, Machpelah means. 
but in general, it refers to a double nature of the cave. And that's what we're going to go see right now. This is going to be once again taking you to the interior. So, so far, first of all, I hope that people appreciate that we've gone to Hebron. It could be you've never been to Israel. Now I've taken you to a degree, Google Maps to Hebron. If you're in Hebron, you may or may not have gone into the cave of matriarchs and patriarchs. If you were inside, you probably were not here. Why? Because for the past 20 years, this side of the interior is closed to all Jewish visitors with 10 days a year that are an exception. There are 10 days a year where Jews can go to this interior. So unless you happen to be in this cave, one of those 10 days out of the year, you weren't on this side. This is the side of, Ab of Isaac and Rebekah. So this here is the cenotaph, is the grave marker of, of Isaac. And this one over here is the grave marker of Rebekah. They're identical. They're different in shape from the other ones. I don't know why. And over here, you can see it's, it's, it's a lot of Islamic things here. This is called um, the, the Minrab. It's the place where the Islamic clergy go to deliver the sermon. And you can see everybody around you in this photograph, they're all Muslim people. You can see the kafiyah, you can see the dress code. And you can also see this strange, I don't know if it's strange, but this unusually looking uh, structure that's now in the center of your screen. What is that? So once again, I'm gonna pop over, pop open a picture. If you go there, you'll see about knee height, you'll be able to see this. It looks like a, like a pet, like a, like a flower. It's made of marble stone. In the center of the marble stone is a hatch that's on a hinge and the hatch is locked. And you can see the padlock very, very clearly. And that is an opening to the, it is one of the at least two openings uh, that lead to the underground chambers. And why is that? Because the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs, the Herodian structure, is a two-storied structure. Let's look at this. Here we can see a person standing at the ground level. It's not the ground level. It's the floor level of if any of you had been to this Marat that's where you were standing. The images that I just showed you, for instance, these people here, that's, sorry, let me close this. These people here, they're standing on this level, they're standing here. And this is that strange little structure that you saw in front of the room. Beneath that, this is the flower where I'm pointing now the arrow. That's that um, uh, marble flower-like device. There's a shaft. It leads to a substructural, substructural room. This substructural room connects via a, a, a passageway that veers off here to the right of the image to yet another substructural room with another access. And beneath that, there's yet another descent that leads to another opening, another cavity. And to the left of that cavity is yet another cavity. So what's going on here is the following. Apparently, here's the, these are the three ex explanations of what the doubled naturedness is of that cave. It either refers to the doubled naturedness of the people who were buried there, meaning it were, were couples. It was Abraham, Sarah, and Abraham eventually was buried there after she died. It was Isaac and Rebecca. It was Jacob and Leah. And eventually, it also became known as the tomb of Adam and Eve, which I'm not going to get into right now, although that's not mentioned in the Bible, is a very 
ancient Jewish tradition. So that's explanation number one. That's the double nature of the cave. The other explanation is, and these are opinions that were recorded in the Talmudic literature, I'm not making this up, is that the double nature of the cave means that there were two caves, one on top of the other. Maybe that's what we're seeing here. There's a cave below and a cave above. And another opinion says, no, the caves were two, but they were horizontal, not vertical. And that's what we're seeing here on the bottom, perhaps. There's one on the right and one on the left. And that's why it's called the Machpelah cave. One, two, and or three reasons. That's what we have there. During the story, which I'm not going to read to you right now, there is a way that my protagonists, not only do they go into the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs, not only do they go into the Islamic side, even though they are not Muslims, but they also manage to access these chambers down here. How it's done, you'll have to read the book to find out, but they do it in a way. And um, the question is, is it based on other things? And here too, I'm just going to put myself back on screen for a minute. Okay, there I am. And the, um, that way I can also see some of your faces. Because uh, when I do the share screen, I can't see. So um, it's intriguing that in 1967, 1967, Hebron was conquered really by one individual. He was a general, but he was a rabbi. He was the chief rabbi of the Israeli army. You can read more about this online. For those of you who are on the Zoom tour with me to Hebron, we actually saw a fantastic video clip that shows it. We're not going to do that right now. But it was Rabbi Chief Rabbi Gorin, who basically went ahead of the troops and made it to the Cave of the Matriarchs and Patriarchs, where the chief Islamic clergy, um, as representing the forces of Hebron, surrendered and said, yeah, we give up. We, we, we realize that this our day is done. The sun is set on us. And here are the keys to the Cave of the Machpelah. Um, a few, a little, a short while later, the chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, really wanted to explore underneath, and therefore he asked his, one of his right-hand men, a guy named Arbel, Yehuda Arbel, he said, get down there and find out what's down there in the, in the original burial chambers. This is all history. And he couldn't fit through that, that opening that I showed you earlier of the, of the marble flower petal shape. It's too narrow. It's only 18-inch diameter. And, uh, but his 12-year-old daughter, Michal, she was a teensy-eensy little girl, and she did fit. And they sent her down. They tied her a rope around her waist. They, this is 1967. They lowered her down. I'm not going to get into the entire story. She came back up. She had some information, but she was 12 and she didn't really know what she was doing. A few years later, and this is a story that, again, I, I, I myself only knew about the story about a year ago, even after I published the first book. So it's something that doesn't appear in the first edition, and I inserted it only in the second edition, because I just didn't know about it. It's that, um, it's that secret. If you, they, the, the Israeli army, a few years later, took one of their military officers lowered him down there, and he came back with information. I can't tell you exactly why or what and why not, because still today, still today, it's been almost 50 years. It's been 50 years, actually. It's been exactly 50 years since he went. He's still alive, by the way. Okay, his name is Tzvi. 50 years. That file is still classified as top secret. I I'm not making this up. It's, it's incredible. It's still classified as top secret. So I can take you down there to the best of my knowledge, and my protagonists go down there to a degree, 
But I promised you a mystical, magical journey to Israel, and I think that's what we're getting. You're understanding here from what I'm saying that there's a tremendous amount of intrigue, mystery, and secrecy regarding those underground chambers. Um, there's there's a, a wealth of traditions, uh, Jewish uh, traditions, uh, Islamic traditions that tell all sorts of tales regarding what happens to people when they have in the past, centuries ago, gone down to those underground chambers. Let me just tell you, none of them, none of them end well. None of them end well. Um, the last real attempt to go down there was in the 1980s, where a guy named Noam Arnon, he was, he's the, he was at the time the, um, uh, the, um, the Jewish uh, leader, the Jewish spokesperson of the Jewish community of, of Hebron. He, he got a group of people down there. They could only go so far. You can read about it. You can read about it. He writes about the experience himself. They felt, and I'm making a long story short, eventually they reached a point where they felt an overwhelming spiritual presence and they could not go any further. Not that they physically couldn't go, just emotionally and spiritually, they could not go any further. And they retraced their steps, leaving it for another day. And that day has never come. This Norm Arnon, by the way, just wrote a PhD book on the Marat HaMachpelah. And obviously, a lot of the things that I just said are, are included in, in this book, but we'll suffice with that. So that's, that, uh, that's our little uh, venture to Hebron. Now I'm going to take you on a journey, not geographical. I'm just going to read to you a short section here. One second, I need to share screen again, like so. There we go. And I need to take you to chapter 57. Okay. So chapter 57 is going to be not a site, I told you. It's going to be in general Jewish geography. I might be skipping a little bit. Um, I'm reading here from the page 274. Okay. Um, here we go. I read from the bottom of page 274. They're on their way from Tiberias to Tzfat. Okay, two of the holy cities of the north, both in the galley, Tiberias and Tzfat. So the bottom of page 274 says the following. Um, Yitzchak, didn't you say that the source of seek diligently and find, which is that same quote that, they, that I already showed you, which was their first note. Didn't you say it's from the Tractate of Megillah? I did. Why? Well, it occurred to me that the word Megillah means story, but a Megillah is also the physical scroll on which a story is written. The roll-up scroll hides the text within, and to read it, one must open it up and reveal it. That's the connection between the verb megale, to reveal, to the noun megillah, which is scroll. And this is exactly the task that we have been thrown into, revealing something hidden. Layers upon layers, Yitzchak agreed. But I should add that it goes deeper than that. The tractate of Megillah deals with the laws of Purim, including the regulations of reading the scroll of Esther. And while Megillat Esther does translate as the scroll of Esther, it also hides a secret meaning, literally megillah, Uncover. Esther literally means hidden, uncovering the hidden. From a spiritual perspective, the entire story of Haman and Mordechai and Esther and Achashverosh, it's all a facade. Without negating the historical accuracy, the biblical story is narrated in a way that covertly describes the path to discovering inner consciousness and spirituality, or in other words, revealing our core, our concealed core self. And so... It, then the conversation continues regarding, regarding um, uh, a spiritual meaning of, of perm. And I brought this up also because 
Some of you may have been uh, celebrating um, with your rabbis, with your communities, what's known as the small Purim or the minor Purim, which occurs only every few years. So this talks a little bit about the, the inner meaning of Purim, but it also connects it to the geography. And I'm taking you here to the, to the bottom of the next page of 276. He says, this is the truth, where I'm showing here with the mouse, this is the truth, but not the entire truth, Yitzchak said. This is the area where the sages, oh, I have to go back just a few lines, where he says that the Galilee's region, the name comes from the word Gal, which means wave, because it implies the rolling mountains and valleys that you can see. So then he says, this is the truth, but not the entire truth. This is the area where the sages wrote the books comprising the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gemara, the former in Sipori, the latter in Tiberias. And as you know, the ancient books were written on Megillahs, which are scrolls, okay? Megillah, Galal, Galilee. So it all connects. True, but anachronistic, Adir encountered. Adir is the one who is who has become secular, and he's a very, very secular-minded person. The Galilee's name existed before those third and fifth century events. So Yitzchak knew the, an the, the answer to Adir's objections, but he was aware that it was hinged on a fundamental difference between how he and his brother viewed reality itself. And he decided to attempt to answer, the, uh, to answer nonetheless. So this is a little bit about Jewish geography. I'm not going to read it all, but, but, uh, but I think it's important because it, it does talk about Jewish geography here. So I'm reading here from a few lines down. He says, um, what are the four holy cities? That's easy. Jerusalem, Hebron, Sfat, and Tiberias, because everybody knows that. What makes them holy? Well, Jerusalem is holy because that is the site of the first and second temples. Hebron, as we have seen, is the patriarchs and matriarchs, etc. And then Yitzchak says, yes, true, without detracting from them, there are other explanations as well. In the Kabbalah, we learned that everything in the world has a spiritual nature, some more obvious and some more obscure. Uh, that also, that also um, is true regarding people. And um, skipping here to the next, hold on to the next page. And I hope this isn't too disjointed, but the idea of what he's saying is that, that there, in a way, sometimes you can look at this physical world, but the physical world is actually based on the spiritual world. So that's exactly um, what I'm about to show to you right now, here, uh, on page 279. He says, um, it, had, it, it had to be that way. It had to be. So Yitzchak is talking. In the middle of page uh, 279, yes, it had to be. Our tangible reality mirrors the universe's eth ethereal soul, not the other way around. The spirit is timeless, immortal, and immutable. Matter is limited and will decay. Adir made no signs of objecting to this line of thought, so Yitzchak continued. Tzvat, he said, is the place most connected with the, to the essence of our being. Tzvat's essence is air, relating to the Jewish communal soul and its revival. The soul in Jewish mysticism is connected to breath, reflected by the word neshama, which is soul, which is virtually the same as neshima, which is breath. Yitzchak paused for a moment, allowing Adir time to absorb. To summarize, this is what the Kabbalah refers to as me'akoach el apal, literally means from the power to action, but a better way to put it would be actualizing the potential or potential to reality. What he's basically saying here is a concept of Jewish geography that if you're a spiritualist or, or looking at the, at, at the world in a, through a spiritual lens, then essentially you're not, the, the, the physical universe mirrors the spiritual nature 
of, 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 of the ethereal universe. And this is part of the path. And these, these little Kabbalistic ideas, it's not that I wouldn't say it's the main part of the book, but these spiritualistic and Kabbalistic and Hasidic ideas appear throughout the book. And so I just want to read this because it's a general sort of Jewish geography type of understanding. What, what does that mean? Is it just a game of saying, hey, hey, you know, um, uh, I, I'm uh, Mr. Cohen. I'm from Georgia. Uh, do you happen to know, right? So, um, so that's also Jewish geography, but that's just a game. And um, as opposed to, to that, which is not just a game, but it's actually, it shows you the, the, spiritual, uh, the spiritual essence of what Jewish geography is. Okay, um, now I'm taking, without further ado, to, uh, we're going to go to Jerusalem. One moment, please. Okay. I'm just going to take you straight, because of the time, I'm just going to take you straight away to, um, um, to Jerusalem. Uh, without reading to the part of how they know to go there. So I'm just going to skip ahead. Here we go. So we're going from Hebron. Well, the map is taking us from Hebron over here to what is called the city of David. Okay. They are now looking for the tomb or the Davidic, David's tomb or the Davidic tombs. Okay. This, if you go to the city of David, which is the ancient core, which is not, you can now see on the map. Let me just pull out a little bit so you understand the geography. In the center of the screen right now, you're seeing the old city, okay? This is the northern side. This is the western. This is the eastern side. This is the southern side. Just outside the southern wall of the old city is the ancient city. Uh, it's a little bit strange, but the ancient city is outside of the old city of Jerusalem, okay? I'm just spinning it around so you can maybe get a little bit of an angle here. And that's where I'm taking you to next. I'm taking you now down to the southern side of the city of, one second. Uh, need that picture again, one moment. To the southern side of the city of David. So it's down here in reality. As soon as that picture pops up, I'll open it up. Here it is. This is what's called Wiles dig. While. Why while? Because this area here was excavated in the early part of the 20th century. Now, archaeology is relatively new science. It's been around for about maybe 170 years. Most of the early archaeologists in the Holy Land of Israel were Bible-thumping Christians who are here to find the roots of spirituality, religion, Christianity, Judaism, and, uh, and other. But this property here was bought by a Jewish man that you guys all know. His name was Baron Rothschild, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, as in the famous Rothschild. <clears throat> and he also wanted to purchase lands for Jewish communities to settle, to live in the land of Israel. He purchased this. But he also wanted to find the ancient Jewish understandings within the landscape. Again, archaeology is new, and they're looking for these things. So he sends a Jewish archaeologist by the name of Raymond Weil. He was French, and he discovered these two caves here. This is a cave. This is a cave. And according to Raymond Weil, and according to my understanding as well, you are now looking at the tomb of David and also the tomb of many other Davidic kings. And the reason for this is in the Bible, it says, in, in the book of Kings, it says that David was buried within his city, within the city of David. This is within the city of David. And it could be that this is the original location of David's tomb. Now, if anybody out there is saying, wait a second, I've been 
to the tomb of David, and it's not there. It's here. It's on the top of Mount Zion, which is what we're looking at now. That is Mount Zion. I'm going to pull you in a little bit closer. Okay. And also here, I'm going to try to spin it around. Here, where it says King David's tomb up there on the top, <clears throat> that is where the tomb of King David, David is located. I'm going to stop the spinning and open up the picture here. These are some still images of a structure of the interior of the structure that's built there on the site today. This is the inside. On the right-hand side, there's the cenotaph, that is the grave or grave marker, really, just like we saw in Hebron. Um, this is it again. This is an even earlier picture where there was a red thing covering it. This is a woman because the site is divided. It's a very small interior section. It's divided men on one side and women on the other side because people go there to pray. This again is the men's side of the, uh, of the, of the tomb. This here is, a, is an ark uh, with the Torah, and the, and the tomb is inside of this room where this man is looking right over here. This is what it looks like from the roof. This is the general courtyard. And as you can understand from these pictures that it's a small but uh, holy site. This is the entrance, the modern entrance from, uh, from the outside, from the courtyard going here to the main entrance. That's what it is. Um, but there's more here. There's more than just what you can see. There's much more than meets the eye. Hold on one second. Okay. Um, just, I would just want to say here a word that connects to, let me just open up this image here, a word regarding these two different sites. And as I just showed you two different sites that both of them or either of them <clears throat> could be the tomb of King David. So some of you might be thinking, well, it, it can't be both. It can be neither or one, but it can't be both. But that's also not 100% true because it happens sometimes that bones or graves can be relocated, okay? They can be. And um, the thing is, though, that we have conflicting sort of traditions regarding this. So, for instance, if you read in the books of Josephus Flavius, Josephus Flavius was a Jewish Roman historian. Much of what we know about of the Roman and Greek eras is based on his writings. Um, he writes about the tombs of, uh, or the tomb or tombs of the Davidic kingdom that they were essentially, it was like an ATM. What do you mean by an ATM? What he means is that within those tombs, there weren't just bones, but there was also a tremendous amount of loot, of treasures. And whenever a Judaic king was in trouble, was in debt, financial debt, they would go to these ancient Davidic tombs and raid them, simply take out the, the artifacts and the jewelries and whatever else was in there. And he'd be like, hey, look what I just got, another million dollars from, it's, it's a Dow, it's, it's an inheritance from who knows when. So that's, that's number one. On the other hand, there's the Tosefta. Now the Tosefta is a part of the greater Talmudic literature. And the Tosefta, it says that the, that the bones of King David or the tomb of King David was never touched by anybody, never touched by human hands. So what do you do? It could mean that up until that point, no one tampered with the tomb. Maybe at a later time, somebody did. Why? Maybe because they were being looted. And I can't tell you, these are all thoughts, but I don't have answers. But what I can tell you is this, and this I'm popping up in this image right here. This image shows you, it's the floor plan. Look at the one on the bottom first, okay? The one on the bottom here shows you on the right-hand side, where I'm showing you now the arrow, that is the structure of the tomb of 
David. That's where the images that I just showed you, that's where they're taken from the interior of that. However, underneath the building, there is a substructural passageway that leads to the left and opens up into a cave, which eventually opens up into another passage that opens up to ground level. The top image shows you the aerial view. It's the same thing, just, just you're looking at it from above as opposed to from the side. So here's the, um, the, 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 the gray square is the, um, is, the, is the building of the Davidic tomb. And there's the passageway and here's the cave. So I'm going to read to you actually one short thing here. One moment, please. Okay. Uh, let me just stop share here for a minute. There we go. So it's just it's just a paragraph here. It's just a short paragraph, a little bit of an action scene. They're in the they're in this room where I showed you earlier, where the Davidic, where the cenotaph actually is. They're in there. The air has been cleared out because um, they're doing some archaeological um, uh, renovations. Really, this is all based in history, by the way. These have been done over the past few years. And he says like this. Um, a deer picks up a, um, a sledgehammer to break through the floor. So his brother Yitzchak, who's the ultra-Orthodox one, says he decided to appeal to a deer's professional side as opposed to religious sensitivity. A deer, I thought your mission was to protect holy sites, not to destroy them. A deer paused for a moment. This is true, but my current mission is to find our father. He hoisted the tool high above his head, and that, here he brought the sledgehammer ferociously down onto the tiled floor. Exactly, the hammer came up again. What? Down again. I'm going up again to do. This hammer descended for a third time, shattering the tiles and exposing an opening to a recess underneath the floor. A look of astonishment on Yitzhak's face was complete. How did you know this existed? He asked, bewildered. Adir looked him straight in the eye and said, because I read. Don't worry, Yitzhak is going to get back at him. Because that's like only a brother would say that to a brother, right? Because I read. What do you mean because I read? Like we just broke open the, the floor in the Davidic tomb, exposing a secret cave. And the answer you gave is because I read. So it will be explained, not now. But again, when people read this book and they're like, Josh, you made it up. Yeah, it doesn't exist. I've been to the tomb of David. There's no secret cave. So again, there is a secret cave. I just showed you the map. And I'm going to show you now who discovered it. And then I'll take some questions. So who discovered it? Let's do this again. I'm sharing you here again. Um, this guy here, okay? Now, if any of you felt like this was a little bit of Indiana Jones, at least parts of it, uh, I'm not surprised. Um, if there was an Indiana Jones in the 19th century, his name was Sir Captain Charles Warren. And if there was a bad guy from the first Indiana Jones movie, and I think we're all the right age group to remember the first Indiana Jones movie, then he was a French Belloc. Belloc is the evil guy, the evil archaeologist in, in the Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This man here in the photograph is the bad guy of the archaeological world of the 19th century. And his name is Emerte Pirotti. You probably have never heard of it about him. And why is that? You never heard about him because he did things that you're not supposed to do. He did things without permission. He worked in Ottoman Turkish, man, Ottoman Turkish Palestine. He worked in Jerusalem. He was an engineer. He was an army officer. He was an archaeologist. He was all the above. And he actually worked for the Ottoman Muslim Turks. 
and they gave him permission to do some things, but not everything. So that's his picture up here. And in this image, what you can see is he is the only one, and I've done research, he's the only one to claim that underneath, if you go into, this is on the Temple Mount, okay? This is on the Temple Mount. Let me just show you a picture of the Temple Mount. Let me go back one. If you were to go in, and we're not going to, but if you were to go into this structure, which everybody recognizes as the Dome of the Rock, he claims, I'm going here again for the picture, he claims to have been underneath the Dome of the Rock. Now, this cave here in the image, which you can see here in the photograph, is still open today, not to the public, certainly not to Jews, it's still open there today. But what you don't see is that underneath this carpet, there is a hollowed area. And that hollowed area has been explored by no one to date, with the exception of Emir Perotti, who claims to have gotten there from a substructural passageway, which you can see the arrows are pointing to. That same Emir you're saying, but wait a minute, how does this answer the question regarding the tomb of David? Because, and now I'm taking you back to the, to the uh, Davidic thing, and that is because he also says the following. Here, you know what? Actually, let me pull this up on the screen. And here we go. Let me just share this with you. You can also see that I'm not making it up. This is from his diary writing about his exploration of the Davidic tomb. He says, I visited the chamber in February of 1859, having obtained admission from the same Santon, that's the Turkish ruler, <clears throat> in return for certain services I had rendered him, also by bribes and presents at various times. You understand that this guy is not Mr. Nice Guy. He's sleazy by the recommendation of the Pasha and by having won the goodwill of the Mohammedan, that's the Muslim families who occupy the houses above Nebi Daoud. Nebi Daoud is Arabic for the prophet David. That's King David to us. Most of whom led out horses, etc. Now I'm skipping here to the second paragraph. He says, um, uh, as I unfortunately made the exam examination in the rainy season, it was not very successful. The water had soaked through and run down into the interior so that I was impeded by mud composed of wet soil, ashes, and bones. And I do not know whether I should have been able to extricate myself from the fetid quagmire if I had not had two men with me and taken my usual precaution when visiting an unexplored place of fastening a rope around my body. That was Emirte Pirote, his diary. Okay, it, it, it is a non-published book that, that what, I just, what you just saw, it's not published. He was chased out in shame from the Holy Land of Israel. He died in obscurity somewhere in Europe. Most people have never heard of this guy and they've never read what you just saw on the screen right now because again, he wrote his books, but no one wanted to come close to him. So his stuff was never published, uh, but he was there. He was there in that, in that underground chamber in the tomb of King David. So once again, I did not make it up. Now, uh, now for the summary, I'm sorry. And this, uh, this is just gonna take about three minutes. So now for the summary. Um, in general, what Josh. is the goal of this book? I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. So this is a three-minute summary, and then and then I'll take some questions from Rabbi Salish. So what is um, what do I do? For the past 30 years, I've used tourism, leisure tourism, as a platform to, and framework to educate people in Israel, related topics, Judaism, Zionism, and so forth. So too, this book utilizes leisure reading for the same purpose. Um, as a testament to achieving this goal, former clients of mine, tourists, while reading this book, have told me that it as, was as if they were touring Israel once again. 
So my students and clients know to ask me always two questions. Josh, where are we and why are we here? At first, these questions deal with the obvious. Why are we here? And eventually they get down to the under, we eventually reach the understandings that what we are dealing with while touring around Israel is the grandiose, why are we here? Not just here at the site, but why are we here in the world? We don't discuss the meaning of life, but we do unravel the meaning of what our lives is or are. While being entertained, I tackled, while being entertaining, the book is entertaining, I tackled major issues of politics, philosophy, and faith. I think that authors write who they are, and my protagonists are me. One is an Orthodox Jew, the other is an IDF veteran and secular-minded. My inner debates are their discussions. Israel's turmoil is their friction, and their success, I believe, and there is success. There is resolution of the friction that they have, of the tension that comes up, and I believe that our success as a community and as Israel and as Jews, I think that their success is our future. The 36. I said I'd, I'd get there, so here I am. Abaye said, I'm quoting here from the Talmudic literature, okay? This is from the tractate of Sanhedrin. It appears twice in Sanhedrin and Sukkah. Abaye said, the world has no fewer than 36 righteous people in each generation who the great divine, uh, who greet the divine presence every day. As is stated, happy are those who wait for him. And the word ashrei, kol chokelo, in gematria, the numerical value of lo, him, him implying God, is Lamed Vav. Lamed Vav is 36, alluding to the fact that there are at least 36, 36 or at least 36 full-fledged righteous individuals in each generation. But the 36, the book, the 36 is much, or, or the number 36 is much more. 36 is God. 36 is God's call to us. As I began in the beginning with this word here, Ayeka, Ayeka, which you can now see on the screen, Ayeka, is where are you? That's God's call to Adam, the first man. It's God's call to all of us, basically saying, where are you? Why are you? Where are you? Ayeka, the numerical value of Ayeka is 36. One plus 10 plus 20 plus five is 36. And there are many, many other, there, let me put it like this. And with this, I'll end. Um, I think that for years I've been striving for educating people and discussing with people, where am I and why are we here? And I think this book does that. And the 36th of the, of, the, of the book, let me put it like this. If you read the book, there are 36 references, Jewish references to the 36 in the 36. And I'd love to hear from many of you telling me, saying, I found 17, or I found 32, or I found all 36 in the book. They're all there. Um, I didn't make it up. I, again, I'm not that good. It's all real stuff. It's all part of our Jewish heritage. I'll give you just, you know, since we just celebrated Purim, I'll tell you that that um, Hanukkah, which is like a sister holiday to Purim, how many candles do we light on Hanukkah? Anybody want to take a guess? So since you can't talk, I'll tell you, it's 36, okay? So there's a lot there. I'm going to cap it here and pass the microphone to Rabbi Salish. Well, thank you, Josh. That was fantastic. Um, I can speak for myself. This is very intriguing, learning a lot and uh, checking out snippets from the book. Um, so first of all, thank you, Josh. Now we have a few um, comments and questions that came up in the chat. And I encourage um, uh, those that have questions that have not yet put the questions in the chat 
please do so because that is how we are going to continue this conversation. So the first question that I see in the chat that came up, at least uh, the way it came up here chronologically, is a question about um, question about writing. I guess this is a per, more of a question not on the content, but more about the concept. Um, any tips for writers, future novelists? Walk us through your journey a little bit, very briefly, but about your uh, your your write the writing itself. Fantastic. Okay, thank you for asking. Whoever asked that, that a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, I'll tell you, I was walking down the street. This this is a true story. Um, actually happened. I was walking down the street about nine years ago, and I have a, a close friend. She's uh, at the time she was a wannabe author. By now, she's actually a published author. She's written some incredible books about um, their their books that that are uh, Jewish fantasy, Jewish fantasy. Her name is Rena Rosner. She's actually accredited at the end of the book in the in the thing in the in the acknowledgments. So she said to me, "NanoRimo." I said, "What?" This is what she said. She said, "NanoRimo." I was like, "What? What did you say?" She said, "NanoRimo." I said, "What are you saying?" She said, "NanoRimo." It's an acronym. It means National November Writing Month. And that, that date, and again, I'm not making this up, there was the, it was the 2nd of November when we had this conversation. She says, NaNoWriMo, it's an incredible thing. You have to get into it. And it encourages people basically within the month of November, every single year, you're part of a writing community. It's online. It's free. You can sign up. And, you, and the idea is to crank out about 10,000 words, which is considered to be the core of a book in the month of November. And I did that. And that, that what set me on my journey. However, for all of you men out there who have wives, if you have wives and if your wives have had children, you may never be able to relate to the issue of pregnancy and giving birth unless you write a book. So I apologize to all the women out there and I can already see some of the women smiling. The closest a, person, a man can get to, 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 to childbirth is writing a book because like pregnancy, it grows inside of you and whether you want it or don't want it to come out, it will come out. It has a mind of its own, a will of its own, a nature of its own, and that's what it was. So it's a, it can be a painful process. It's a beautiful process. It's a painful process. It's a timely process, but that's, what that's my story for sure. I, I can't say that I wanted to write a book. The book wanted to be written, and therefore, that's what happened. That's, that's, how we, that's literally how I feel. I've expressed this to other male authors, and they're like, oh, my God, that's exactly what happened to me. So it's not just me. That's apparently a thing. Um, Josh, if that, if that's how you're putting it, then I have to ask the obvious question. Is there going to be a sibling? Is there going to be a younger, uh, oh <laughs> um, any, have... any plans of any family plans for the future? Any other book? Uh, wow. That is such an Israeli question. Rabbi Salish, that's like <laughs> in Israel though. No, 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 no. Anyway, no. I, I don't, I don't mean to press. All right. No, it's okay. okay. The, the short answer is I would like there to be a sequel. Um, um, we'll see. Okay. Uh, we'll probably be called the 37. <laughs> exactly. 36 and a half. Okay. So now let's get to the next question in the chat, which was, this was a question about a book called Under Jerusalem by Andrew Lawler, okay. which apparently is about excavations, any connection with what you spoke about, et cetera. Uh, no, I haven't read Under Jerusalem by Andrew Lawler. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Some people have told me that there's some other book that's fiction that deals with something under the Temple Mount. Maybe it's that one. There's, there's no, 
No connection. No connection. There is, I believe, there's at least one of the book out there that's a work of fiction that connects to something under the Temple Mount. But mine, uh, my book again is is a very of a very different vein because it's really it's a it's a work of it's it, it's a it's a Jewish non it's a Jewish work of nonfiction that's hidden. Haha, theme of the day, hidden within a narrative fictional story. Okay, that works. Um, okay, next question, and this is uh, this speaks to some of the mysteries of of Israel. Um, on what level under the dome of the rock structure is the original rock that Jacob prayed on? Okay. What can you tell that, us about me, the dome of the rock and the Jewish uh, spacing of the, on, on that? So for this, I'm going to share. To answer this, I'm going to share, uh, screen share, and take you here over to the dome of the rock. Okay. Um, even better... Uh, yeah, let me, oh, it's probably here, one of these images here. Let me just flip through some of these images. Ah, this is the interior of the Dome of the Rock. This is looking up at the ceiling. The answer to your question is, is at the ground level. Uh, it probably appears here eventually. This, these are Google images. These aren't my images. That's why I'm flipping through them. Okay, it may not be here. I may have my own image. Let me just go to the next screen. If it's here, I don't remember. We'll see in a minute whether it's here or not. No, okay, but you see here this cave. There's an opening up here. That's that's where everybody goes to. This area is not accessible to the even to the Islamic public. This area is not accessible. Um, so the the rock is here at the ground level of 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 the shrine. So that's that's where it is today. If you were a a a a Muslim or or somehow obtain permission religious permission, political, et cetera, permission to go into this uh, structure, you would see on the ground level in front of you, you would see the rock that is, that is that, that, that's what you're asking about. I need to, I need to, I'm going to stop share here for a second. That's what you're asking about. It's visible. It's about the size of about uh, maybe about 30 square feet. Okay. Um, it, there's a railing that's around it. So you can't, so you can't step on it. Um, and, and there's a small passageway that you can descend 16 steps and go into that sub rock cavern, which I did show you an image of that. However, that doesn't exactly answer your question because the question Rabbi Salas was the rock that Jacob prayed uh, slept on. Isn't that the question? Yeah, that's exactly the question. Okay, so the rock, so, so remember that there is, a, and it actually does come up in the book just as a, as a half sentence, there is a spiritual connection that our rabbis made between Jacob's dream and the, um, and the rock known as the foundation stone, which was also the floor of the Holy of Holies of the temple. But it's not the same. Remember that Jacob was in Bethel. Bethel is north of Jerusalem. So the Jewish tradition is that the ladder ascended from the ground to the sky because the verse says its feet were on the ground and its head went up to the sky. So some of the Jewish traditions say it went up, it didn't go vertically up, it went up on a slant. So the base was in Bethel, the top was over, over Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, which means the center is over Jerusalem. Now, the way that I personally have always, under, I don't know if always, the way I've come to understand this is on the spiritual level, the hint, hint here is that the point of mediation, the connectivity point between us Jews, mankind, humankind down below, which is Jacob and Bethel, 
and between the ethereal above God spirituality that runs through Jerusalem. In other words, what we do in Jerusalem, what are, are we are we worshiping God correctly? Is our heart in the right place? That is the point of connectivity between humanity below and spirituality above. But remember that stone that Jacob puts his head on is in Bethel and it's not the stone of the foundation stone. Okay, that's I just want to point that out. It, what is the Jewish connection? Is, this is the follow-up question to that question. So what did happen Jewishly in the cave under the Dome of the Rock ground level? What are the Jewish associations with that area? Okay, so there is um, a Jewish tradition that says the following. Um, it, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, but again, anybody that's good is not that good. That is, they can't think, they can't make it up all themselves. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, how much of it is that is false? How much of that is fiction? There's a lot of Jewish traditions that are interwoven within that, within that movie. The Jewish tradition says the following. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was one of the four vessels, which are also are very important. It's a very important theme throughout the book. The four vessels, their spiritual meaning, what they mean, what they're connected to. The Ark of the Covenant was... Um, a, a, was a basically a, a small box. And inside of that box were, according to Jewish tradition, a few different items, including the, the, the broken tablets, that Mo, the, 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 the fragments of the first tablets that Moses broke. Um, that was kept in the Holy of Holies. However, King Solomon, that is the guy who's the son of King, uh, King David, the guy who designed, constructed, built the first temple, the Solomonic temple, in his wisdom, being the wisest of all men, that's his title in, in Jewish culture and, and tradition, foresaw that in the future it might be misused, mistreated, looted, stolen, and therefore, or, or perhaps something else. And therefore, what he did was he devised a secret chamber underneath the Holy of Holies. This was actualized, this was utilized by one of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, who was the king, jo in Hebrew, it's Yoshiahu. In English, that would be Josiah, who, seeing that the Babylonians were going to attack and loot the temple, he hid it in that secret chamber. So there you go. There's a there's an ancient Jewish tradition that says that underneath the Dome of the Rock, there is a chamber. However, it also says it's a secret chamber. So it is most likely not that first opening where you saw the Muslim prayer mats that are 16 steps beneath. What it could be is it could be that chamber that Emirte Perotti, the Italian guy, claims to have seen and access from underneath. Now, again, that's his claim. I can't prove it. I can't disprove it. And the other thing is, if King Solomon really did it, he was probably smarter than Emirte Perotti. And therefore, I highly doubt that Priyoti found it. I think that what he did is he found that there is something there, but I don't think he accessed it. And this also appears in the book, because my protagonists actually do find the secret way to access that secret hidden Solomonic chamber. So again, we know for sure that there is a chamber underneath the dome, underneath the, um, underneath the rock, that's visible and accessible to some. It is known that there is some hollowed out area beneath that cave, but no one can really tell you about it. 
and 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 it does connect to Jewish tradition of yes, King Solomon did construct some sort of secret chamber. Potentially, in Jewish tradition, the Babylonians did not take the Ark. The, the Indiana Jones did, did not. The Nazis did not find it. It is not in Steven Spielberg's um, uh, Hollywood studios, but it is still. It never left. It never left the, the chamber of the Holy of Holies. It never left the secret chamber that King Solomon built and designed where his great-grandson, Yoshiao, where he would hide it. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I will add also that the, the Rebbe mentions on that piece of Rambam, the, Maimonides, the, the section from Maimonides where it talks about the secret chamber that, that uh, Solomon built. So the Rebbe explains that being that that's the case, that, king, that, that the king, Josiah, hid the, hid the Ark of the Covenant underground and it was built originally by Solomon, it means that really the temple has two, two dimensions. Yeah. It's not like it's in storage, but from the same one who built the temple also built an under, underground version, which means that on some level, the temple, or at least a part of the temple, was never compromised. Yeah. Right? It's like there's yeah. two levels, there's two dimensions of it. So on some level, the temple, if, if the ark is the core of the temple and the ark was placed in one of the Solomonic chambers that was initially intended that was initially built when the whole thing was built, then it's, and if, if assuming it's still there, that means that on some level the temple is still bishleimut, still on some level, uh, at least essentially in in a in a whole state. But that's yeah. that's for another class and for another conversation. Absolutely, uh, and I think that's one of the things that that people that read the book. I know that I've read the book more than once, <laughs> um, and um, I, I have to say that the first time I actually read it in book form was was uh, after I'd printed it. I'd only read it on screen. It's a very different experience reading it on paper. And I was reading it. It was on Shabbat. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a really good book. And I was like, who wrote this? And I was reading the book and, and it came to me that there's layers upon layers that if you have no Jewish background, you'll understand it and you'll enjoy it. If you have some Jewish background, you'll get more out of it. And, the, and, and it's a book that, because I've read multiple times, the more I keep reading it, the more I understand like, the more I understand things about that, that I wrote myself, which is unusual because I wrote it. I know that's strange, but it's true. And especially if you didn't write it, you're just reading it. I think that there's, um, there's, there's a lot of, it, it, both, in, both in the level of entertainment and also in the level of, of just a Jewish education. So like the rabbi said, like Rabbi Solar said, you know, that's, a, that's a, a topic for another class. There's a lot of topics in there for a lot of classes. <laughs> It does sound like at least thirty-six times thirty-six. That's a that's a big that's a big that's a big matrix number. Um, so, somebody wrote in the chat about the, that he was there in nineteen seventy-two, um, yeah. in that area, and he yeah. remembers going in and there was a wide circular opening, uh, what looked like a peak of a rock. He was able to see, yeah. And um, but now it looks like there are carpets in a room. What were, were things modified over the last uh, five decades? I would imagine so. If you were there in 1972, it was accessible to Jews, technically speaking. I'm not going to get into the religious and spiritual aspects of it. That also comes up in the book of the of the spiritual dangers of, of going physically of actually accessing the site, but it could be accessed. Um, the the carpets, I'm not exactly sure. Remember that the the inner, the under the dome of the rock is a is an is an is a is a, is a open room, as it were um the carpets they change the carpets all the time the carpets you know there's wear and tear people walk on them they they, they bow down on them there's wear and tear so they they maintain them so so it, it could be that in 1972 there were no carpets uh either on the main level or at the 
or in that cavern. It could be there were no carpets down there. Uh, as you can see, by the way, I'll share this one last thing. Uh, here, this this here is an image because there was a there was a couple of, of Christians who obtained access to this. This is an etching from the uh, I think 1890s or 1880s. Uh, you can see that some of the there's some stone floor here, and this guy's on a carpet. So it, it's been modified over the years. The carpets or stone or or something. It, it's not a per, it's not a thing of permanence. Got it. Um, okay, I wanted to do like one or two more more items. Oh, uh, if the temple treasures are really buried underneath the temple, the question is how are they depicted in Titus's arch? Um, what is depicted in the arch of Titus? All right. Wonderful. 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 <laughs> okay. So you just brought me back to the big reveal. Uh, you brought me back. You're bringing me to the big reveal in chapter 100. Um, uh, um, the, the chapters are short. There are 101 chapters. Ah, why are there 101 chapters? Again, something's just developed. Why are there 101 chapters? Because in ethics of our fathers, a chapter in Hebrew is a parak. A parak means a chapter, but also means like a um, 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 a volume of study. So in, in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, it says he or she who studies their chapter 100 times is not like the person who doesn't have, will not have the understanding of he or she who studies it 101 times. Okay, so that's 101 prakim, 101 chapters. That's why there are 101 chapters in the book, because to it, 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 it like on a on a deeper level, it implies that there's a lot more than it meets the eye, and you can read it more than once. So your question is a great question. How is it possible the menorah, if it's still in the land of Israel, how is it possible that it depicts on the Arch of Titus? And the, I'm giving you the brief answer, and you'll have to understand by reading the book how and why that happens. The answer that I give, the answer that I give is that was the Romans' attempt to cover up their failure. And what you're seeing is you're seeing the Arch of Titus. You're seeing uh, a, a record of an event. But what happens on Masada and what happens in Jerusalem and in Masada is that, is that the Jews cleverly realized that the temple's days were done, but the, but, the, but, the temple, but the vessels would be, not that they would be destroyed. That wasn't their fear they'd be destroyed. Their fear was that they would be used as pagan relics. And therefore, they were taken, they were hidden. And the Arch of Titus is the Romans' attempt to basically, because they would have been tremendously um, ashamed, uh, ridiculed, um, at their failure, at their failure to, uh, to retrieve those, uh, those relics, which is why Titus said, I want it in the Arch of Titus. I wanted my victory arch. I want everybody to know that I did it. And he wanted people to know that he did it. Why? because he did not succeed in doing that. And that is the foundation of the 36, okay? That is the foundation of the 36 of basically in the book, there are 36 righteous individuals. And the first group of 36 righteous individuals are the original guardians of the secret locations of the temple artifacts. There you go, spill the beans. Look at that. Look at that. Look, look at how, look at what look we went to at the end. All right. We'll do one more question. And this is a question about the book or more precisely about how to obtain the book. Um, we know about the Amazon link. Are there any other ways to obtain the book? Not through Amazon, through other, other sources. Um, so Amazon is what's called KDP. It's print. Uh, it's called a, a POD print on demand. 
Now, there's, I don't have a stock, a warehouse of these books. So that's a very, um, um, it's, it's cost efficient and also environmentally friendly uh, <laughs> way of saying, we'll only print what's going to be bought. So that's, that's if you order it in the States from Amazon, you can do it that way. If the other way to do it is in Israel, I have a, I have a printing house in Jerusalem. So if you want your book to say printed in Jerusalem and you want a hand-signed copy by the author, or you could ask my eight-year-old daughter to maybe to make, do a little doodle in the front or something like that, then that's all good. We can do that as well. You send me an email, um, but, but then I'll have to pay for, um, or you'll have to pay for the shipping. Or if you're in Israel, then, then, then it'll be a lot cheaper uh, for me to get it to you. Um, but that is the other way to do it. You could essentially send me an email and say, I, I want it to be hand signed and I'm willing to pay for the shipping. Josh, um, should we put your email somewhere? Should we, uh, should we put it in the chat or you want to just share it right, share right now? I'll do it right now. I'll put it in the chat. Let me just open Amazing. it up to everybody. Everyone in meeting. So here, you can also find, I have a website online. Uh, one of the pages of my website is dedicated to the book. One thing that I have not yet done, but I probably will do very soon, and this is my email I just put up, um, is that I would like there to be a discussion group. I think they're called um, billboards, like billboard discussion groups, um, that so people can can discuss uh, different ideas that come up in the book. Um, it's not it's not limited to to a Jewish audience. The ideas are Jewish ideas. Um, I have uh, one of the first people to to buy the book and read the book and to comment on on Amazon. Uh, is an Irish pastor, and he's been with me before in Israel, and he was he was blown away, and it it, it touches people in in very very different ways. Um, um, I think that in general that has to do with the with the fascination that the modern Christian world has about the Jewish faith. Um, um, but uh, but that's just again to show you that you don't need to be you don't need to have an Orthodox background or a Hasidic understanding to understand a lot of the ideas uh, of the book. Um, and, and in general, it's also a fun read. It's a fun read. And, and it gets to questions like that last question of like, but the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Titus says that they, that they stole the, uh, the menorah. It doesn't say that. It just depicts it. But that doesn't mean that it happened. So, so it's actually dealt with in those things as well. In the U.S., we call this fake news. There's a term for it. There you go. It's <laughs> fake news from 2,000 years ago. So Who would have thought years. that 1,000 years ago they also had the concept? Yeah. Josh, I, I want to, on behalf of all of us here, on behalf of uh, my dear colleague, Rabbi Silverman, I want to thank you very much. We don't take this lightly that it is now, what, 3.30 a.m.? 4.30. Four, my apologies, 4.30 in the morning in the Holy Land. And I, I, I am very grateful. I know we're all very grateful for you to literally wake up in the middle of the night um, and spend time with us and walk us through the book and walk us through various hidden secret sites uh, in, in Israel and show us kind of behind the scenes and draw out the story and, and, uh, and, and give preludes to the book. So thank you very much. Um, and we are very much looking, as we say on, on, uh, on Yom Kippur and on Pesach, as I mentioned before, L'shana Habab Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem, which doesn't mean that we have to wait a year. But by next year, we should already be in Jerusalem. And uh, if we're there already, might as well hang out and have a coffee and you'll show us around a little bit. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, Rabbi Salsh, I can't wait to meet you in Israel. Rabbi Silverman, I can't meet, wait to meet you again in Israel. And um, Zeo. Zeo. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you all for joining. Thank, thank you. Thank all of you. Thank you. Thank for, you. Thank uh, you. Helping sponsor. 
And Yashukach, everyone. Take care. Shabbat Shalom. And be well. Bye, Bye everyone.